0: Alternative business structures for law firms. Why should it consuming public care? Good question. Andy Hollowby from Greenberg Tririck joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. All right. Welcome back, listeners. Hope you're having a great day out there, wherever you might be. We have a different kind of show today. We're breaking away from current events a little bit here, and we're going to be discussing this, this new ownership structure for law firms and how that could potentially change some things about legal representation in the future. So if you're in law, interested in law or may at some point become a client, this episode will be useful to you. But before we get into it, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, NOTA. NOTA is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. How true. Take advantage of NOTA, a no cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. That's down to the penny. Visit TrustNoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. Noda is spelled NOTA spelled N O T A. And of course, Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello to our guest. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hi, how are you? Doing well, doing well. It's a beautiful day out where I'm at, and I understand you're, you guys are having a good
1: day, too. We are here in Phoenix.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, Andy, you know, before we get into our topic here, you know, uh, you, I know you're a uh, shareholder at Greenberg TriRig, but you have experience specific to what we're talking about today. So, you know, tell us about your work that you've done in professional responsibility and ethics.
1: Well, sure. So so thank you, Lawrence. It's great to be with you. I, I have been practicing in this space for many years uh, at a very large law firm headquartered in Phoenix. I was the ethics chair for more than a decade. I've worked on various Supreme Court and state bar committees in the space. I teach the subject in law school and uh, you know now counsel clients, law firms, investors, and others on the new law and things related. So it's, it's really something I've been paying quite a lot of attention to.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So we've got the right guess is what you're telling me.
1: Well, I'd like to think so. (laughs) Okay,
0: fair enough. enough. So, well, listen, let's start with that opener question I had during the intro. You know, just this is the the relevance question. So not all of our listeners are lawyers. And so, you know, they're going to be like, why are we talking about law firm structure? You know, and so why does a consuming public care about these new models for ownership in law firms?
1: It's a great opening question, Lawrence. And the answer is that the consuming public is the reason that alternative business structures are becoming to be made available. The premise of the new laws allowing alternative business structures, and just to get a little terminology out of the way, an alternative business structure or ABS is any business entity or practice that practices law but isn't owned entirely by lawyers. that's That's what's new. And the premise of the governments in the state supreme courts that are allowing ABSs is that the current system is failing to get consumers the legal services they need at a price they can afford.
0: So the basic premise is that by allowing this this non-lawyer ownership of a law firm we're going to somehow take advantage of some business economies to scale, correct?
1: That's correct. And you know, there there are some areas that are that are more suitable for alternative business structure work than others, things like family law, estate planning, dealing with the landlord and so on. The organized bar in various states has worked very hard to ensure that the poor and near poor can get pro bono legal services from practicing lawyers. And those folks still need that help and 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 lawyers will still continue to give that help. the The problem is there are a lot of people out there who aren't poor or near poor but still need to hire a lawyer and can't necessarily afford it.
0: All right. I want to get into some of the yays and nays, because I know there's some detractors from this model, but I want to build out just a little bit more of the structure and what the meaningful difference is. And so most states, they have this requirement that anybody that operates a law firm and owns, it has to also be an attorney. Is that correct, Andy? Yeah, that, that's correct. And so this allows, it's not just a mixed ownership where you can have non-lawyer ownership. And, and I've seen those models come in where they have like a, a partial ownership model suggested in some of these committees and, and people that have volunteered for state bars and, you know, come up with these alternative ideas to try to, uh, you know, get more out of a law firm, try to reduce the expenses and increase access to justice. In some of these, now they're talking about complete ownership of a law firm entity by non-lawyers. Is that right? That's correct. All right, let's get into the yeses because you know we've traveled around the country quite a bit. You know, we'll meet with different bars, like uh, state bars, city and local bars. Um, you know, we'll talk with the different committees, and, I, and I'm sure Andy, you're aware of some of these committees. Probably talk with a lot of the same people actually. And so I know that the, that the opinions are pretty strong on both sides of this. There's a it seems to be a little polarized. So let's start with the uh, yeses. You know, there there are people out there that are you know big cheerleaders. I would imagine you might be one of those cheerleaders. So tell us what's so great about this ABS model, and, and you did get Get into a little bit of it, but there's a there's a lot of advantages that are featured on this side of the equation.
1: Well, the proponents of ABS laws basically say, "Why not try something new because the old system isn't working?" And you know that's the thrust and the gist of the idea, and that's one of the things that incidentally distinguishes Arizona, uh, where where I'm talking to you from from Utah to our north, which has a pilot program allowing ABSs, but hasn't jumped in with both feet as Arizona has. Arizona's jumped in with both feet because they reason if someone's actually going to try something new and invest in it in a major way, they need to know that the return on that investment will be there in the future. Another closely related reason that proponents advocate for ABSs is that they believe that if they can get access to investment capital that investment capital can be used to promote innovation in the delivery of legal services, which in turn will make those services more cost-effective to the persons who need them.
0: You know, I would imagine, and I've heard this as well, when you kind of drop down those, those strict restrictions between fee sharing there, and you can bring in a lot more marketing options. Is that is that also correct?
1: Yeah, that's part of it. And actually, it's a very astute question because one of the things that's gone hand in hand in Arizona with this change to allow ABSs is a reduction in the restrictions on lawyer advertising and, and being able to take money in exchange for referring someone. So, yes, it's it's basically just an exercise in opening up opportunities for investment and innovation. That's, that's what the proponents would say.
0: You know, I think just you know when you apply that to other businesses, that, that ability to, to fully market whatever business you're in definitely gives you that opportunity to scale up. So let's turn to the nays, because I know there are many lawyers out there that are just firmly against us. And I have heard some of their very heated opinions shared at some of these meetings. So let's discuss some of their concerns.
1: Sure. Well, you know, the primary concern, the, the biggest bucket in which you would hear concern articulated is the fear that non-lawyer ownership would influence lawyer judgment away from client interest and in favor of personal economic interest of the practitioner or you know the non-lawyer owner and it's interesting that the primary uh, ethics rule that most states have adopted and the aba has adopted its model rules is titled um, professional independence of the lawyer so that's the dominant concern there's there's you know a, a second Concern and I'll, I'll share a bit of history here. So back in the early 1980s, when the current version of the model ethics rules was being debated at the ABA, a practitioner from Philadelphia who was known as a you know, leading voice in the bar asked whether a, a then current proposal to allow non-lawyer ownership of law firm would allow Sears to practice law. And the, the reporter in, in lawyer parlance, the reporter is the one who's taking the minutes and synthesizing the, the debate and the proposals, um, who was a very leading leading uh, you know, academic in the area of legal ethics answered, uh, yeah. And so you know, there was something of a visceral reaction to that. The ABA House of Delegates voted down the proposal then and, and has uh, you know, on a periodic, you know, approximately decade by decade basis ever since just reporting, not advocating here. I, I will share one quick story if I could. and that is that you know economic interest is a fact of life for practicing lawyers in a wide variety of walks. And one example I'd give you is when you have a fender bender and someone sues you, you your counsel is invariably supplied by your insurance company. You didn't hire them yourself. and that lawyer has to deal with the insurance company who hired them even as they deal with you, the client. And so, you know, that is the dominant concern. It is one that is addressed in other parts of the model rules. And it's it's one that I think lawyers live with every day.
0: Well, Andy, you know, I'm aware of uh, at least three different places that have some uh, variant of this ABS model in play. So there's there's Utah and they're doing this the sandbox model, which I understand is good for two years. And then I guess uh, District of Columbia, D.C., has uh, some kind of model in there, but it's a little more restricted than Arizona. Are there other areas? And then if you wouldn't mind just kind of filling in the differences between Utah, Arizona, D.C.?
1: Sure. the The primary uh, difference with DC is that, and it, it's allowed. It's allowed ABSs for more than twenty five years. But the sole purpose of an ABS in DC has to be providing legal services. Whereas, as we're seeing in Arizona and Utah, businesses are coming in that are offering a mix of services and not just legal. The primary differences Utah from Arizona are twofold. One. You know, as you mentioned, Utah is a pilot program, so the regulatory authorities there have to grant on an application-by-application basis whether someone can participate, and that will only last for two years unless something changes.
0: Now, what happens after that? Like, so if, if you've got this firm out there, and I, and I think there's one called Law on Call out there right now that's in operation. And so after two years, like, let's say you've got this great relationship with this this law firm that you call up and you get some advice from from time to time and you work with them in a way that's comfortable for you. After two years, is that law firm gone in Utah?
1: Well, that that's, that's the question. Uh, you know, one, one might speculate that Utah is going to find the program a success and turn the pilot program into a program that will continue. But yeah, that's what would happen. And that's why, again, Arizona elected to not adopt a pilot program, but to just change its rules to allow these.
0: Now, admittedly, I'm a little on the fence with this, you know, and I definitely see the business wisdom of this, uh, pulling in more capital resources and uh, being able to take advantage of more economies of scale, and uh, you know, when you have more options for revenue, it can definitely lend towards, you know, basically passing on savings that you get over sort of volume-based discounts and volume-based uh, ways of doing business. So I, I'm You know, intrinsically aware of the advantages there, but I'm still kind of on the fence. I think the conflicts of interest part worries me a little bit, and this is where I get an earful from uh, both sides of this because I'm on the fence, and then I have friends that'll argue on one side or the other. They're trying to get me to agree with them, and so this is the one that causes me some pause. Now I I can be won over. I'm not against it, but I'm not all for it. The conflicts of interest does bother me, and so you know, if you're a lawyer and you're at one of these firms that's owned by uh, non-lawyers, you know, you've got a professional responsibility as is you're very aware to manage in your best judgment what's going on with your client and to pursue all legal avenues as your client wishes to within the constructs of the law and the representation that you signed on for. Now, bosses, as we all know, uh, could put on some pressure there. And so what are these structures doing to kind of avoid that conflict of interest there, you know, uh, getting in the way of that lawyer's judgment that worked for one of these companies?
1: So in Arizona, one of the things to keep in mind is that the application process to get an ABS license is very like the process to pass character and fitness for an individual bar applicant. So you don't get a license unless your organization establishes that it has the equivalent of character and fitness to attend to those things. Number two, in Arizona, you have to designate a compliance lawyer, and that's a term of art in the regulation, that and that individual has to attend to and see to the ethical compliance of the organization, including its lawyering components. Third, lawyers and law firms today have a lot of conflict of interest issues to think through. I don't think there's so much economic as just making sure that your clients don't have divergent interests, but you have to see to you know, make sure you're uh, aware of personal interest conflicts too. And lawyers and law firms have, have had those rules and, and developed and followed robust procedures to avoid problems for years and years. And so I, I, I understand the concern. I'm not sure that fundamentally it's all that different.
0: Okay. I have a quick follow-up there. And then I want to get to one last question. So my quick follow-up, and I should have asked this earlier, but the obvious one, you're in one of these businesses that is owned by all non-lawyers. The only people doing the legal work are attorneys, correct?
1: as you've set it up, yes.
0: Okay, perfect, perfect. So last question for you. This is the full faith and credit question. And so these ABS models are not recognized by the majority of states currently. And so if you have one of those type firms uh, coming across state lines to represent client interest over there because of a contract that was signed you know, the applicable law, let's say it's in state of California or, or some other place, um, and you're, you're out of, let's say you're out of uh, Arizona and you're going into a state that doesn't allow it, will that state recognize the validity of that firm? Now, granted, you've got attorneys doing the work, but it's a firm that if it was in their state would not be recognized. So are they given full faith and credit as a law firm in other states?
1: Well, I, I don't have any reason to think that legal work done by an ABS lawyer in one state isn't going to be recognized as valid legal work in another state. Now, granted, the laws governing which state's rules govern a particular lawyer's conduct and indeed where that lawyer is practicing law are incredibly complex and evolving, especially because thanks to advances in technology, not even to mention the pandemic, more lawyers are working remotely than ever before. But I just wrap up, Lawrence, by saying, you know, these are times of change and tumult in the profession. And I think that we just have to sort of acknowledge that things are evolving so rapidly and in so many dimensions that we just have to, you know, keep an open mind and and take the issues as they come.
0: Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
1: It's been a great pleasure.
0: And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like this show, please give it a favorable rating in your favorite podcasting app. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Nota. You can find them at TrustNoda.com forward slash legal. That's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. And last but not least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN crew for being awesome. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Gleddy. Have a great day, everybody.